I'm Patrick Medivh, your host of Valuetainment. Today I'm sitting down with Greg Kading, who is the detective from L.A. trying to solve the Biggie homicide who killed Biggie that led to him finding out who killed Tupac. And all I can tell you is if you remember the 90s West Coast, East Coast hip-hop rap, the rivalry that was going on, you're going to be very interested in today's sit-down. Greg, thanks for making the time for coming out yeah, here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so so uh, before getting this, you had already done 200 cases, give or take. Yeah, throughout my career, I was already a, you know, a senior detective at the time that I got this case, but I had come through narcotics and homicide and had a really deep background in gang investigation, so it just seemed like a natural fit to, to take on this case. Now, was this something that you went after, or was it something that was just given to you out of nowhere? It was given to me out of nowhere, really. I was working major narcotics, and I got a phone call one day from a detective at Robbery Homicide Division who was um, overseeing the new resurrected Christopher Wallace Biggie Smalls murder which was being re-examined re due to a lawsuit that was being waged against the city of Los Angeles, wherein allegations had been made from the Wallace estate that LAPD officers were complicit in the murder. Complicit in the murder. And is that kind of what attracted you to it? Or, or you already kind of knew this was taking place? I had some knowledge of the case, but very limited, really just you know, superficial knowledge of the case. I was attracted to it just by the the challenge of it all. I enjoyed things that had to do with gangs, I enjoyed things that had to do with narcotics, and of course, this is a high-profile murder wherein both of those worlds were gonna be visited, so all of those things kind of attracted me to it, and, and I knew the department uh, wanted to get to the bottom of it. Now, before even getting into it, what is the itch? Why, why, why do you wanna be a detective? Like, what is the inspiration behind, you know, I want to go find out more. I want to dig up more. Where, did, where does that come from? Have you always been like that? Yeah, I've always enjoyed puzzles. And that's what homicide, well, any investigation is. It's about, uh, you know, finding pieces of evidence and trying to fit them all together to get a, you know, a comprehensive picture of something. And so there's a challenge involved, and it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, being a detective, and especially in a city like Los Angeles, it can be a lot of fun. It can be really challenging, but when you have a good partner and you've got a good team around you, um, it's all worthwhile. Did you listen to uh, hip-hop back then or no? Were you a hip-hop guy or? No, uh, no, I have to admit I wasn't. I'm kind of a classic rock guy. I came up on, you know, Bob Seger and Aerosmith and that type of stuff. Slightly different music. Slightly different yeah. music. And, you know, and again, back in the mid-90s, of course, there was kind of an adversarial relationship between law enforcement and mm -hmm. the gangster rap community. You know, songs from MWA, like, F the police and that were coming out. And so, you know, there was just these two different worlds that uh, were, were kind of frowning upon each other. Did you personally see them as the enemy yourself? Was it kind of like, I want to put a stop to this and I'm willing to contribute? Was that kind of your mindset or I'm just going to go do my job? Well, the gangs, you know, we perceived as being, you know, they're, they're a detriment to their community. And so that's what it is. You're trying to protect the people in those communities that are trying to just get through their lives with pursuing you know, their, their own agendas. And then these gangs, they wreak all kinds of havoc in the community. So somebody has to be there to try to curb that, and that's us, that's law enforcement. Did you have a personal uh, uh, incident that happened to you with a gang member or anything that even created more fire in your belly, or not really? You've never had an issue yourself? Well, there were certainly gang members who I despised, you know, guys that were out there, um, you know, committing murders and robbing houses and raping women and that type of thing. But with that being said, I developed really good relationships with certain gang members and we became friends. And even guys that I'd sent to prison for years, I'd stay in touch with and, and uh, once they got out, you know, formed, yeah. formed friendships with them. So everything really is taken on an individual basis, but you, know, you have to judge the behavior at certain times. The only reason I ask is because, uh, I, I can only imagine, if you put 97 four-inch binders on this table, I mean, there's a high likelihood one of them is going to fall off, right? To want to do that and pursue it, you can obviously say no to it, right? You can say, no, I don't want to do this. I want to pass it to somebody else. Do you have the ability to do that? Or is it, Kading, this is yours. You've got to take it. Go get the job done. 
I could have declined it, okay. you know, because they did. They wanted somebody who would be interested and motivated to do the work, and so they didn't want to have somebody that the, the work was forced on. Uh, it just doesn't it doesn't amount to uh, a good objective, proactive approach. So I liked it because um, I I have a certain kind of obsessive compulsive personality, and if you put something like that in front of me, you know, the challenge is, and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna do my darndest to figure it out. So. And, and you need the right personality for this because because this is like I was telling you earlier, you know. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit with Greg. Great. We've done a lot of different interviews on the channel. We've never gone into the hip hop side, and mm -hmm. you know my interest with Tupac. I said, okay, great. Let me let me want to pursue this. But the more and more you read, and the more and more you investigate, it's a never-ending story with this, with the, all the conspiracies, 17 conspiracies that could be right, five over here. Here's a person on this side. It was this guy. Was that guy? So. When it was first given to you, what was your first approach when you got it? Did you say, let me go through all this material first then, or did you say, I don't want to look at any of this stuff, let me do my own investigation, then I'll come to it? No, we had to review all the information that was available at the time. All of those binders we had to go through with a fine-tooth comb and start piecing things together and develop the most viable theories. Because there are, there were some, you know, there was just some ridiculous uh, allegations and theories out there that you know we we had to listen to but we couldn't really take seriously just based on uh, on face value uh, but putting together all the information that contained in those binders did lead us to the most viable and practical of the theories and decided that those would be the ones that we'd spend our time and energy trying to prove or disprove got it so so you're you're getting it you're looking at you're reading all the material yourself Russell Poole himself had come up to a conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he was going in a direction where he felt it was, you know, who he thought had handled the business for Biggie or Tupac. Mm -hmm. First of all, what was that to the audience, assuming they know nothing and them not seen the documentary or read your book? And secondly, what direction did you go after you read that? So Russell Poole, he developed a loose theory based on some strong circumstantial evidence that there were some police officers moonlighting for death row records and some LAPD officers that may or may not be associated with Suge Knight. And through kind of a series of random circumstances, put together this theory that these cops were involved. And the cops that he ultimately identified was a notoriously bad cop from the LAPD, a disgraced cop named David Mack, who after the murders of Biggie Smalls had robbed a bank and, you know, there was some indication that who he was associated or um, with, with gangs down in Compton. So all of these things led Russell Poole down this road where he started to fit information together to serve that theory's purpose. And we took it as a serious theory. There was, as I said, really good circumstantial information to believe that this could be true. And so we pursued that as a viable option while keeping in mind that it may not be true also. And so it was kind of through a process of elimination that we'd take a theory, if we could disprove it, then we knew we could set it aside and move on to the next theory. Got it. Uh, Greg, do you mind if we go to the other room on the board? I have pictures of everybody and I kind of want you to walk us through the connection of everybody with each other where you know, when you're investigating, I would picture like, you know, some of these movies that they're doing investigation. They got all the characters up and you kind of are trying to figure out how you got to the bottom <laughs> of who killed them. Yeah, you let's mind do, if we do that? That'll be fine. Let's go to the let's other go. one. Yeah. So, Greg, I want to take a different angle with this because I think this gives the audience a better visual to kind of see how everybody's connected to each other. So, if you can kind of walk us through what we know here is obviously it started with Biggie, the investigation. Tupac kind of came in. And then I have Eazy-E here, I have P. Diddy and Suge Knight and a lot of different characters, even Johnny Cochran and Russell Poole. If you can kind of walk us through some of the connections here, that'll probably be most helpful. Great, yeah, and this is very helpful um, for me also during the investigation. This is exactly what we did. Put together a big flow chart so we could put faces to names and start making connections. So this is, this is the way to present the case, so I appreciate that. Um, of course, you've got Biggie and Tupac. There are victims killed in 1996, killed in 1997. Over here you have Russell Poole, who was the primary investigation back in 1997 assigned to investigate Biggie's murder. 
And so, of course, we know that Biggie was uh, with P. Diddy at uh, Bad Boy Records, and Tupac at the time in 96 was under the death row, death row with Suge Knight at the helm. So these are all just some of the ancillary characters. These guys aren't really related insofar as the murder investigation is concerned, but of course we know Easy and Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre from the founding days of Death Row. You know, Easy E coming out of NWA and Dre, and then of course Snoop Dogg uh, joins forces and they all become. How, how much do you buy into the conspiracy about the AIDS where Suge Knight said what he said on Jimmy Kimmel, or you don't, you don't, that's, you've never investigated that to, to find out the validity of it anyways? We didn't take a deep dive okay. into it. I don't believe it. I don't believe that he, you know, injected him with a needle full of... Even though he said it on Kimmel? Right. Okay. Well, Suge Knight said a lot of things. Sure. Most of which are untrue. So it's just his nature to throw out, you know, all kinds of nonsense. Um, you know, he said Tupac's alive. He said that Diddy killed him. He said, you know, he said a million different He'd things. He'd make so. a good politician today. <laughs> there you go. Perhaps when he gets out of prison, yeah. he'll, he'll become one. So yeah. walk us through the rest. Okay. So, uh, you know, back in 96, um, Tupac Shakur, as we know, was in Las Vegas, Nevada, watching a Mike Tyson fight. He's along with Suge Knight and this big entourage of people uh, with Death Row Records. They're at the MGM. After the fight, Tupac gets into a fist fight with a gang member from Compton named Orlando Anderson. His street name was Baby Lane. After this fist fight takes place, security gets there, they break it up, everybody goes their own way. And Tupac Shakur later on that evening are on the way over to Suge's nightclub. Do you mind uh, highlighting this? And I, I don't mean to interrupt mm -hmm. you. Orlando, they got into a fight because of Trayvon claimed that he took the death row uh, medallion, and at that time he was given $10,000 for every medallion that they took. Apparently it was the case, right? Or all of that's true, except the thing about him offering up any kind of bounty for those medallions yeah. has always just been kind of street rumor legend. It's never it. been validated or verified. But there was a rumor on the street that there was an offer of $10,000 uh, to get one of these death row medallions, which Tupac had and many of the other people at death row um, possessed. So they're heading over to Suge Knight's club. This is after the Tyson fight. Um, Suge Knight has got this club in uh, Las Vegas called the 662. Mm -hmm. It's a new enterprise for him. He's trying to secure a gambling license and a liquor license. So it's a really big night. It's an important night. He's got Tupac alongside of him in a, in a BMW. Tupac's supposed to perform at the, uh, at the club that night. Mike Tyson's supposed to make a, an appearance. So it's a big deal. Um, while they're en route there, a white Cadillac pulls up alongside of them. Uh, somebody leans out of the back window and opens fire, hits Tupac multiple times, and he ultimately dies six days later in the hospital. So the murder investigation out in Las Vegas uh, begins immediately, and they begin to question people, including Reggie Wright, who was the head of security at Death Row. They try to question Suge. He's not cooperative. Many other people within that entourage get questioned, but the cops don't really make any real headway because people aren't, aren't cooperating. Mm. So, as a result of that fight that took place between Tupac and Baby Lane, Suge Knight gets himself involved in that melee and gets sent back to prison on a probation violation. So six months later, when Biggie is shot, Suge Knight is in prison, or he's in uh, the LA County Jail facing these probation uh, violations. Biggie comes back to L.A. in 1997. He's with Diddy and his cousin Little Cease and the rest of the Bad Boy entourage. They attend a party at the Peterson Auto Museum on March 7th of 1997. And as they're leaving, because the fire marshals closed the party down for overcrowding, as they're leaving, Diddy and his bodyguard, they're in a, a uh, suburban, leaving the location. Following them is Biggie Smalls, his cousin, and several other members of the entourage and a dark SS Impala pulls up alongside, very similar to what had taken place in Vegas six months earlier. An assailant reaches out the window, shoots Biggie several times, and he dies on the way to the hospital. So now the 1997 Biggie Smalls investigation is unfolding, um, and it's assigned to this guy, Russell Poole, who is an LAPD robbery homicide detective. Got it. And, and, a, and a part of this, when the shooting happened here and he went to jail, did, didn't he make uh, a, an offer to him 
for $16,000 to say that he wasn't hitting him, he was trying to help him. Did that actually take place? It did. Uh, there is some question as whether it was $16,000 or $60,000. Okay. We've gotten different versions of that story. But we know he did go to testify in his hearing and, uh, and favorably trying to say, yeah, uh, Suge was not kicking me, he was actually trying to stop the fight, and he shouldn't be, you know, violated for his probation. The judge doesn't buy it, he can see that Orlando's lying through his teeth, and uh, Suge ultimately gets sent back to prison. So for it didn't help years. at all? Didn't help at okay. all. All Got it did was expose him as a, uh, as a perjurer. Got it. Okay, let's, uh, so from here, at this point we have both West Coast, East Coast top rappers, have been shot and killed. Have been shot and killed. He died six days later. He died, you know, on the way to the hospital. There's a recording apparently on, you can hear the recording uh, on the driver. It's like, I'm trying to find the hospital. Where do I find mm -hmm. the hospital? And then he dies on the way there. Right. So what happens next? So after uh, he's DOA, uh, the murder investigation begins to unfold. They secure the crime scene back at the Peterson Auto Museum. And as I said, um, shortly thereafter, Russell Poole becomes one of the primary investigators uh, to, to, to look into the matter. And he begins to figure out that there has been this ongoing rivalry between these two camps. It's been going on for years. There's already been violence between the two camps. And we're seeing that there's this hostile animosity going on, not only between Biggie and Tupac, but between Diddy and Suge Knight and then their respective crews. So there's like these different levels of the conflict that are going on. So he begins to develop the, uh, you know, a theory that uh, all of this is probably due to some type of interaction among all of these, these people. And then an unexpected thing takes place. While he's investigating that, he hears and responds to a shooting that takes place between two LAPD officers. This guy, Frank Liga, who was working undercover narcotics at the time, and an off-duty officer named Kevin Gaines. These two guys get into a road rage incident. They both pull guns on each other. Frank Liga shoots and kills Kevin Gaines. And during the investigation of that shooting, he finds out that Kevin Gaines is driving a vehicle that's registered to Suge Knight's wife. And during the um, follow-up of that investigation, finds out that Sharitha Knight, his wife, was actually dating this guy and had been for some time, an LAPD officer. So for him, it raises the question, why is an mm. LAPD officer dating the wife of a known criminal and a guy who's got a reputation in Los Angeles that precedes him for violence and that type of thing? Now, at this time, does he know that that's taking place or no? It's not public info. Uh, Suge is aware of the fact that this incident takes place. He's aware of the fact that they've determined that uh, his wife has loaned her vehicle to this police officer. Did he know it pre the event or he learned afterwards? He knew it before. Oh, he so was he aware that he his was wife. Okay. Yeah. So they were kind of separated, separated okay. on the outs. Yeah. So uh, Johnny Cochran ultimately defends the lawsuit that's uh, lodged against the police department representing Kevin Gaines. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, but, you know, Johnny Cochran is, of course, a infamous LA lawyer oh yeah oh yeah so it, it, during during by the way his credibility does he have a strong credibility of who he was with his past at the time you know Russell Poole was known as a really diligent um, hard-working uh, respected detective had he worked on something this big before a case this level just some ancillary involvement you know when uh, Cosby's kid was killed in Los Angeles he'd worked Hundreds of gang homicides and gang so investigations. He's got experience. This doesn't sound Tons like that, he knows what he's doing. He knew what he's doing. Okay. And I remember when this when this took place, both of these events took place, P. Diddy, Puffy, and Snoop got on and they interviewed and they said we gotta bring it together and it was a way of them trying to bring peace. Let's bring West Coast, East Coast together. You could tell there was fear mm -hmm. in both of them because if this continues, he's probably next. There's a lot of other people that are going to be next, so they're trying to bring peace. Yeah, well, particularly Snoop Dogg. You know, I think he was in the middle of it. Dre didn't really want anything to do with all the violence mm -hmm. and nonsense going on around Death Row, which but is why he like ultimately that's one with Dre. He just wanted to produce and do his yeah. thing and make make great music. So he wasn't about all this drama that was going on. Snoop also, he just wanted to, you know, he wanted to do the same thing for all intent and purposes, make music. He wanted to be able to go to New York and 
you know, do things out in New York and promote his music out there. But this conflict going on between them was making all of that very difficult. Did you watch that when that interview took place, when they were trying to bring peace? Like, do you, do you when you're investigating, do you look at those types of things or not at all? Oh, of course you like, do. like, you know, hey, we're really not trying to hurt anybody. Nothing really happened. Or does that actually bring more attention to say, why is he getting on there saying something like this now? Does it put more of a target on him for saying that or no? Personally, I think he would have preferred there be a, a truce, a peace. Pre, pre both of these events or post? Uh, prior. Okay. And after, both. Because I think he wasn't, he knew how dangerous this was over here. You know, he's a New Yorker. He's not a gangster by nature. He's just a guy who wants to make music and, and be an entrepreneur and, and, you know, not have to deal with all of the crap that was going on around Suge Knight. When it got really bad was when they were in Atlanta and both of these guys and their entourages were at a nightclub and they got into a little squabble over some girls on the dance floor and you know one thing led to a pushing match and then of course security tells them to all go outside and then his bodyguard pulls a gun and shoots and kills his bodyguard. So now there's blood on the ground he holds him responsible for the death of his friend, and the conflict is really bad. This all takes place long before these guys get killed. How much, long, how much before? So that shooting in uh, 90, that was in 95 so two in Atlanta. Years. Okay, so a year before. So a year before yeah. this. And of course, even before that, 94, he gets assaulted at the Quad Studios in New York and believes that both Puffy and Diddy, at least for a little while initially, he thought that Puffy and Diddy had set him up and they were responsible for that, what do you for think? that robbery. I don't think so whatsoever. And I think he okay. came to learn that it wasn't okay. these guys. In here, amongst these guys, is it fair to say that these three were not gangsters, he was the only one? Correct, definitely not these guys. You know, he was a drug dealer, just a street corner sure. guy. Um, you know, of course, Diddy was coming up in the music business and kept his nose clean for all intent and purposes. Uh, Suge was definitely from the neighborhood. He wanted that whole gang atmosphere and reputation to be what Death Row was. And Tupac ended up kind of becoming an affiliate of, of the gang that Suge Knight represented, which was the Mob Pyrus. He was not a gang member in any way, shape, or form, but he certainly was associating with them and claiming them um, because he was looking for... Protection? Not only protection, but a sense of, you know, for lack of a better brotherhood, brotherhood okay. and, and belonging. Which is most of them, though, right? Most, sure. most If you get into a gang, you're missing something. There's not a father figure. There's not a French brother you have, so you kind of want to get into something. But, but based on what I read, is Tupac had a lot of different personalities. One day mm -hmm. he's the entertainer, one day we're taking over the world, one day it's a philosopher, one day it's the gangster, so you didn't know who really showed up. So, you know, even him not necessarily taking claims of one certain city, whether it's Baltimore, New York, LA, what are you really representing, right? Yeah. But w he was man of the people, yet not really affiliated to any gang. So, background-wise, would you say he wasn't like an OG, OG gangster compared to him? Oh, no, no, okay. no, none, yeah. none whatsoever. You know, he, he was a complicated guy, but, uh, you know, he, he certainly wasn't, you know, okay. a, a gang member. Okay. We call him an affiliate just by this, you know, just by nature of the fact that he's affiliating or But you don't call him, him a gangster or no. a gang member. So, Not at okay. all. Got it. Not at all. But we do have to remember that he was at odds with these guys when he was in jail. Suge was the one that came out there and Bailed rescued him, him yeah. got the bail money up, brought him to Los Angeles, allowed him to make some you know, phenomenal music. And so he saw in Suge a big brother or possibly father figure or mentor. And then of course, Suge Knight's entourage embraced Tupac and he saw with them a, a sense of belonging. Got it, okay. So what happens next? So what happens next, after this happens, uh, Russell Poole uh, then becomes, after the shooting in this whole, the aftermath of this cop-on-cop -cop shooting, another incident takes place in Los Angeles where a corrupt cop, a rogue cop named David Mack, robs a bank in Los Angeles, a Bank of America, and uh, runs, away, runs out of there with like $722,000. Investigators quickly figure out who he, what his involvement was, and they arrest him. And when they arrest him, they find out that he drives a black 1996 Chevy Impala, which is the exact same vehicle as the suspects used in the murder of Biggie. 
They also find that there's photographs of him wearing all of the, a, a red suit and a red brim hat, what was very indicative of how Suge Knight dressed. And he's from Compton, and he's got a loose affiliation with some bloods, according to some of the letters he's written while he's in jail. He's claiming these West Side Riders, I believe it was, um, a Compton street gang. So Russ Poole knows that he has at least one cop who's loosely affiliated with Suge Knight through his wife. And now he's got another cop who is claiming to be a gang, dressing in red clothes, indicative of the Bloods, and drives a black Impala, which is, matches the suspect vehicle in Biggie's shooting. So he begins to form a theory that uh, potentially this guy was involved in the murder of Biggie Smalls. Adding to that, we discover that while he was in jail for the bank robbery, he's visited by this guy named Amir Mohammed, and he goes into the jail and visits David Mack. He becomes aware of this visit, and he finds out that during the investigation into Biggie's murder, an informant had mentioned the name Amir as being the shooter of Biggie Smalls. And so, he finds out there's an Amir that visits David Mack, and that kind of adds fuel to the fire of the theory that he's trying to develop. It's purely a theory. It's purely Nothing. a theory. Good circumstantial support sure. for the theory. Sure. Uh, but it's, it's far from conclusive. It, it, where, where, where does the story come with uh, Louis Farrakhan, where it's, hey, are we good? I want to make sure I'm good with the brother of Muslim, you know, the Muslim, you know, mm -hmm. that, that conversation. Was that puffy in them? Or wh where does that take place? Yeah, so that takes place the night prior to Biggie's murder in, at the Peterson. They're at the Soul Train Awards. Uh, their Puffy's entourage, his bad boy entourage, gets into a little bit of a, a, a confrontation with members of the Nation of Islam, and that's when um, Diddy supposedly says over to Farrakhan, hey, we're cool, right? I mean, do we need do we need this? And they quell the incident. Got it. But is there anything connected with that here, or not at all? There's nothing connected okay. other than he's Muslim, not fruit of Islam, but Muslim, and there's a conflict the night before. Got with it. Some so it's completely uh, uh, separate. Completely separate. Okay. Got it. Completely separate. But for him, it's a loose connection. Sure. Yes. Sure. So now, what what role does Rafael Ray Perez play? So Perez is most notable. He's kind of the face of what became known as the Rampart scandal in Los Angeles. He was another dirty cop who was going to our evidence, checking out cocaine under an alias name, and then going out and selling and using the cocaine for his own profit. Uh, he becomes discovered during that internal investigation, and then he ultimately makes a deal with the district attorney's office in Los Angeles and starts to name all these other people that he claims were dirty cops. Um, these two was there a lot of dirty cops at that time? Is, is the list as a long list or not really? The whole Rampart scandal ultimately turned out to be like three guys. Okay. Include, you know, He's including him. Sure. He's the main one. So he was just throwing all kinds of dirt in every direction trying to get himself out of trouble. He was making a lot of false allegations against a lot of innocent cops. Got it. Um, but the Rampart scandal legend kind of just took on a life of its own and is perceived as something much bigger than it actually was. These guys used to work together, and so there was some there was some suspicion that he was also involved in the bank robbery, but that had that had been ultimately refuted. So now you have this, you read this, you do the investigation, 97 binders, you're going through this is what Russell Poulos mm -hmm. theory is. Next. Where do you go next? So he's developed his theory, he's presenting it to the department. They're like, okay, this is circumstantially interesting, but it's far from being conclusive. Uh, let's not start making allegations. Let's not start making, uh, you know, adding to uh, newspaper fodder with this theory. He gets frustrated and walks away from the job, basically just quits the job a year prior to qualifying for his retirement, and he goes out and writes a book. And so you've got, you know, a year and a half worth of investigative material in these books. The case of Biggie Smalls is assigned to another investigator. Tupac's case is still being worked out in Las Vegas, but he goes and writes a book uh, called Labyrinth, and that leads to, based on the book, a lawsuit is waged against the LAPD. This is the $400 million lawsuit. This is the $400 million lawsuit that's waged against the LAPD. Based on the allegations in the book that he, that he helps to write, um, an attorney gets a hold of Biggie's mom, 
and says, listen, I've read this book by this ex-detective in Los Angeles. He's got all this incredible information about how cops were involved and they're covering it up. Let's sue the department and get to the bottom of this. So that's what takes place. The civil lawsuit goes in and out of court, um, federal court, state court, dismissed, refiled, and ultimately in uh, 2006, the LAPD says, listen, let's put a full court press on this, get a bunch of people involved, and that's how I get involved, and we start to take, our, take a fresh look at everything involving the case. But of course, now it's nine years later. Nine years later. So no, now you're on the $400 million lawsuit. Just a question for you. Uh, when, when, the, when the city of LA gets a lawsuit that big, are they worried because they don't have the funds to go lawyer up and protect themselves? Is that where their first brain goes to? It's like, man, we, we cannot afford that kind of a lawsuit. It's a, it's a combination. Yes, of course it's that. You know, nobody wants to, you, know, you never know what is going to happen in a civil case. You know, you just, uh, juries are very fickle and you can't afford to lose that kind of money. $400 million is uh, no small change. So they say, listen, we're confident based on all the investigative effort that has taken place in that nine-year period because it wasn't just him other investigators teams of investigators had looked into all of his claims and the LAPD was very confident that should this go to court they can successfully defend it and get out from under that lawsuit but in order to do that they had to resurrect the case and have us take a new look at it and see if we've missed anything so so why did they go from him to you is that because he had the heart attack and he died no, he died years later after I'd already, after we'd already been involved. He died long after the long fact. Long after that. Yeah, he so just died a, a few years ago. Who was he about to have a meeting with that he was, and then something happened where he'd had a heart attack right before that? He was over at the homicide unit of the L.A. County Sheriff's, and the L.A. County Sheriff's was at that time um, in charge of the investigation of Suge Knight when he ran over and killed this guy, Terry Carter. It's a completely unrelated event, but the LA County Sheriff's Department is pursuing him as a, as a murder suspect for running this guy over. And Russell Poole says, hey, I've got this idea. Let's, make let's cut Suge Knight a deal on this murder in order to get him to cooperate about the things he knows regarding these two murders. During that meeting, the investigators are kind of looking at him cross-eyed. All these years had gone by. He comes out of the woodwork. He's been suffering from a whole bunch of you know, personal problems, and he basically just collapses and dies right there at the table. It's purely a conspiracy when people try to connect it with any other events. Oh, yeah. No, it's just no, a conspiracy. Nothing important. happened. He died from a heart attack. Died from a heart okay, attack. Okay, got it. Tons of stress for years. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. This, this, it's the world uh, filled with stress. So, yeah. so you, you explained the situation perfectly well. Now, what do you do next? So as we get involved, you know, we're going to treat all these theories as if they're true and then through a process of elimination come up to the one that we can't disprove and that's the most viable theory and then we're going to try to corroborate that. So as we're looking into this, we know about all the conflict that's taken place between these crews, between Bad Boy and Death Row and Pac and Big and of course the gangs. And so we ultimately uh, want to corner this guy because we knew that he was a, he's a known gang member from Compton. We know he was in Las Vegas at the time of Tupac's shooting, and we know that he was at the Peterson Auto Museum the night that Biggie was killed. So he's a person of extreme interest. Up to this point in time, he'd been interviewed and says he doesn't really know anything, and you know, kind of gives a, you know, throws a bunch of curveballs at us. So we know that he's not going to sit down and just be transparent and open with us after all these years. We develop a uh, an airtight drug case against him because you know, we're aware of the fact that he's got a known history of dealing drugs and uh, pr particularly to this guy in New York and we put an ironclad case against him, approach him and say here's the deal KPD, we have questions about these murders if you don't cooperate you're going to prison for the rest of your life and so are several members of your family who are caught up in your drug organization. He confesses to his involvement in the murder of Tupac Shakur in Las Vegas in 1996. He tells us that his nephew, Orlando Anderson, was in the same car with him, which was the white Cadillac. Mm -hmm. And they had gotten into the fight, obviously, between Tupac and Orlando. And now they're going to go and retaliate at the club where they know that Tupac and Sugar are going to be. And they go over to the club and hunt 
of uh, in, to hunt down Tupac. And uh, prior to that, they meet with this guy in Las Vegas who happens to be Biggie Small's godfather. He's a close friend of Puffy. He's out in Las Vegas. He's aware of all this conflict going on. He's aware of the shooting of Tupac. And so he gives him a gun in Las Vegas. And then they set out, along with another guy named Corey Edwards and five or six other members of the Southside Crips, and they go on the hunt for Tupac and, and Suge Knight. Ultimately, they run into him on the strip, just off the strip actually, and at the intersection of Flamingo and Koval, the Cadillac pulls up, he gives him the gun, he leans out and shoots and ultimately kills Tupac Shakur. And in the car, he is sitting in the front passenger Terrence uh, Brown, T. Brown is uh, the, the driver. He had, I think his mother-in-law rented the car, mm -hmm. the Cadillac, and Correct. apparently Kifidi, every time he would go out, he would always rent a car. Mm -hmm. And then in the back is Orlando, right behind, uh, behind Kifidi, and then DeAndre sitting on this side. He first gives the gun to DeAndre because the car is on this side. DeAndre says no. Mm -hmm. Then he, uh, Orlando says, give it to me. He turns around and he shoots get some. So that, like that's pretty much the event that takes place. And so a lot of it was the attention because the girls were hollering, hey, Tupac, mm -hmm. hey, Shogun. Yeah. They figured out they're them. They made a U-turn to go get them, right? That's okay. right. Yep. So where do we go from here? So By now... Way, he looks like a, he looks like a, a, a Cuba Gooding Jr. from uh, American Gangster, not Frank Lucas, but the guy that Frank Lucas was going up against who was making Blue Magic uh, and uh, spicing it up and uh, selling it for a cheaper price. <laughs> anyway, so just an interesting guy. So he is, He's a known, well, was a, a well-known established drug dealer in Harlem for years. Got he it. was getting a, you know, a, a grip of dope from Keefe D out here on the east, on the west coast. Anyways, he died a few years ago of cancer, natural causes, but he was a co-conspirator in this murder, associated with these guys. And then, uh, of course, these are your two primary suspects. He provides the gun in the direction and he follows it and does the shooting. So now we have a confessing co-conspirator in the murder, which is huge for us investigatively. You know, we, now we've got testimonial evidence uh, to support this, um, this theory. And he tells us things that he could not have known had he not been actually at the scene at the time of the murder. So we, we corroborate what he says and it uh, validated. So now we have, for all intent and purposes, solved this murder. So now we still got our, our other objective, which is to figure out what happened to Biggie. So we take the same investigative approach, and we know that Suge has got a girlfriend. We've given her an alias of Teresa Swan, and uh, that she's complicit in a whole bunch of kind of white-collar crimes, fraud, forgery, and that type of thing. Has she ever done time or gone caught or no? She's been to jail. Okay. Um, so she had a, a... She has a record. She has a record. Okay. And a lot, she, she's, she's got a history. She was his bad girl. You know, she had a lot of women in his life. This happened to be the one that, that he could count on to do something that the other girls may not be willing to do. So we, we basically find out that she's involved in... Uh, a bunch of fraud related to auto, automobile ver purchases. Uh, we do the same thing with her that we did to him. We approach her and tell her, listen, we've got a case against you. We're not only gonna send you to jail, but we're gonna have your young children put into, you know, put into uh, foster care, and you know, your world's gonna take a big 180 if you don't tell us what you know. She ultimately breaks down, confesses, that after the murder of Tupac Shakur, Suge's at the county jail, she goes and meets with him. Suge says, listen, I want Biggie killed. I want you to go ahead and get a hold of my boy Pucci from the neighborhood. He knows Pucci's a known shooter. And he agrees to pay her $25,000, half of which she gives to Pucci, and they conspire to do the murder. So on the night of Biggie Small's murder at the Peterson Auto Museum, she goes to the, to the party. He lies in wait outside in a dark-colored Impala that Suge Knight had purchased for him. And as Biggie Smalls and the entourage are leaving, he just simply pulls up alongside, starts to shoot, hits, hits the big man who dies on the way to the hospital. So this was validated by Teresa Swan, you know, whatever name you gave her, mm -hmm. was validated by her. Correct. Right? Okay. And, and based on another, another interview with Reggie Wright, 
he uh, always saw them, but away from everybody talking. It was almost like a, it wasn't a public relationship. It was more like a private relationship they had. Friendship. Right, right. When you look back at the activities around death row, and specifically Suge Knight and his entourage of gang members, they were always out front and center. You know, they, that, that was the image that Suge Knight wanted for his record company. Reggie Wright explained to us that the relationship with Poochie was something completely different. Poochie would stay in the cut. Poochie and Suge would always go off on their own to have private conversations. We knew he was already wanted for at least one murder. And so he was the kind of guy that you would go to if you needed something like that done. Is it fair to say that on this list of all these faces, the toughest guys on this list, he would be one of them? These are your killers. Okay. Right here. Got it. Right? These are your CEOs. Um, and you know, in a shot collar. Got it. Um, but these guys, you know, are at the at the top of the food chain, and uh, because this whole thing never got dealt with responsibly, these two guys suffer the consequences. Got it. So what what happens next? So now you know, Pucci's it. You guys make a letter that uh, hey, he testified, and he's already told us right before mm -hmm. he died. And even on the letter, you put uh, the date of the letter was April 1st, 1998, meaning April Fool's. Which yeah, I think we were just trying to be a little bit too clever, but ultimately it worked. Uh, she reads the letter that's a ruse. It's a fictitious confession letter that was signed by him and given to an attorney before he was, he was shot and killed in 2002. Um, on a motorcycle. On a motorcycle yeah. driving up the street. Most of these guys have all you know, expired. Um, so we show her the letter. She says... Wow, that's exactly what happened. We tell her, well, why don't you tell us what happened in your words? She explains her solicitation with Suge Knight and how he had paid her and how he had told her to get a hold of him and commit the murder. So we corroborated her statements and now for all intent and purposes effectively have solved both these murders because we have corroborated co-conspirators uh, co that are confessing. So that's where we go to the department uh, we say, listen, we've got all the goods. Uh, our, the department then has their attorneys reach out to Valletta Wallace in the estate and say, listen, we've got uh, new information in the case. It undermines and refutes your civil case. You can continue to pursue that and spend money, but this is where we're going with it. Valletta Wallace, an attorney, at that hearing that, they decide that they're going to retract their lawsuit. It's dismissed in the whole Done. case. $400 million. Whole case. Never happened. Whole case goes away. You've said that you believe behind all of this is, is, uh, is Puffy. You've said this yourself with a million dollars, whether it was a million dollars, whether it was a half a million dollars. Tell us a little bit about that. What I believe happened with, with Puffy was that, again, I, I don't think he wanted this conflict to get worse than it already was. And if he could figure out a way to quell that, he would. In fact, uh, we have a statement saying that Puffy had reached out to um, the members of the Nation of Islam to approach Suge Knight and say, hey, let's have a peace treaty, let's squash this thing, but Suge wanted nothing to do with it. So he was trying to get out from under this imposing threat, knowing that Suge held him responsible for the murder of his friend, and whenever he would come to L.A., he knew that Suge Knight was trying to hunt him down. Uh, we have a, re a reported incident, an investigation, where Suge Knight had accosted one of his associates at a Christmas party in Los Angeles, and they beat the living shit out of this guy. He almost lost his eye in an attempt uh, for these guys to um, gain knowledge about where he lived in Los Angeles. Uh, so he undoubtedly becomes aware of the fact that these guys are actively hunting me mm. down. They're kidnapping, assaulting people. Uh, my life's definitely in harm's way. And so I think that out of that desperation and fear, he turned to the streets and said, can you guys kind of handle this for me? Um, because he knew that if you're going to deal with these gang members, then the best thing to do is get their natural enemies to, you know, to, uh, to do the work for you. And is that the million dollars? The million dollars was on the... According to Keefe D, he says there was a kind of a loose conversation at Greenblatt's up on Sunset in which Puffy uh, allegedly tells Keefe D, um, listen, I'm gonna, whatever, it whatever it takes to get these guys off my back, I need you to take care of them. He says we wanted a million dollars. Diddy's like, whatever. But again, I have to couch that with the understanding that he was in fear for his life. 
It's I, not I fully that, get that. Yeah. yeah. I fully get that. So, But the million dollars is from him, but you don't know really if it's a million dollars or it's a half a million dollars. Because I think it's just boastful talking. Okay, got you it. You know, it's like I saw, if I see a, a really nice car that I'd like to purchase from you, and I just, man, I'll give you a million dollars for that. Yeah. It's just that kind okay. of like loose. So um, how about the part where, where Zip gives him the gun? He says, listen, that right now is the time to do it. Everyone's in town. Go to 662. Mm -hmm. Here's a gun that I have. He leaves it to him with the car. Right. Uh, he gives him the gun. And then afterwards, when they talk on a call, he says, was that us? And they're on the call together listening, and Zip says, yes, that was us. Keefe says, yes, that was us. Yes, that was us. Yeah. Keefe says, that was mm -hmm. us. And then, then he says, we'll take care. Zip says, we'll take care of the money. Six weeks later, he's not getting the money. And, you know, he's finding out maybe he didn't get paid. And then afterwards, he meets with an associate of P. Diddy, saying, Puffy, saying, yeah, we did pay, but, but Zip kept it. And then when they met, is that all been verified that maybe he did keep the money or they did not pay? We don't have anything to validate other than his claim. Got it. He's claiming that he had people that were closely associated with Eric, that, uh, with Zip, that told him, hey, Puffy paid a half a million dollars and uh, Zip kept the money. So that's his claim. Uh, we do know that these two people do exist and that they were associated with him, but those people have never verified that. Uh, so that, uh, that unpaid debt is, uh, was definitely never collected. So why, why were you removed from the case in 2009 or to, you know, a year before your retirement? Why did they, I mean, obviously the show is called Unsolved, right, right? on uh, Netflix. Why was it like, listen, you're going a little too deep with this, Stop what you're doing. We're gonna we're gonna remove you and go a different direction. For the LAPD, once we bring them the confession of Keefe D, their attitude is like, okay, well, that's Las Vegas's case. Pass all the information you have on Tupac's murder to Las Vegas. Let them deal with Keefe D. Let them follow up and and and, and handle their own uh, murder case. With Biggie's case, now the LAPD is out from under this massive lawsuit. They're breathing a sigh of relief. They've just spent millions of dollars conducting this investigation with wiretaps and narcotics buys and all of this, you know, is a large operation. And at that point in time, they realize prosecu prosecution-wise, it's going to be very, very difficult to take the remaining co-conspirators, which at that time really consisted of Keefe D, Eric Martin, and Diddy, and prosecute these guys based on the sole testimony of a convicted drug dealing gang member. So they realized that it's gonna be very, very tough to um, prosecute these people. We've spent enough time and energy on this. Greg, you're gonna get reassigned back to cold case homicides. Everybody else go back to your respective agencies. And they just- That's it. Let, yeah. But That's it's it. nothing bigger than that. It wasn't like, hey, let's try to find out more. Uh, you're, this is going to get us in trouble. We don't want to get more negativity behind it. Or maybe even some cops internally are trying to protect some people that are living. Mm -hmm. Any of those things could be possibilities or no? Not for me. Okay. Uh, you know, not at all. I think it's just simply they were kind of indifferent about it. Like, hey, Valletta Wallace sued us. We spent a lot of money trying to defend this lawsuit. We've spent a whole lot of money trying to pursue the truth. We found that. And now we're just going to let sleeping dogs lie because we can't prosecute the case, you know, for all intent and purposes. It's not practical um, with, with, with Biggie's murder. And so, you know, you've got an ex-girlfriend who's known to commit perjury. And she's going to take the stand and be the sole witness against Suge Knight saying that he, because this guy's dead, remember? Mm -hmm. And so now you've got this, you know, relationship between the two and she's the only person you can put on the stand to, you know, point the finger at him. It's just not going to work out in court. And same thing with Tupac's murder. You know, these guys just don't have any credibility in so far as getting on the stand and testifying because of their backgrounds and their previous you know, uh, convictions and status as gang members and, and um, established perjurers. It's just complicated. And so, so even though you have this much evidence, it's still complicated. I mean, it, what, it, what that, what that, uh, what that then tells uh, a person watching, how is, how are they protected at this point that you know this happened? You're not talking about a small brand. This guy was growing at a level that was pretty wild. And you're not talking about, I'm not even talking here. Mm -hmm. I'm specifically staying here with the talent. They're the ones that's making the money. 
Right. They're, they're the ones creating the opportunity, but they're the ones that are doing the talent. Don't, isn't there a reason to want to go really find out the truth for not only fans, families, people involved, businesses involved with them? Isn't there a reason to even go deeper with that? Well, there, you know, for us, there's a saying in, in investigative circles, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. And knowing what happened is one thing, but then going to court and successfully prosecuting people to bring them justice, that's a different thing. It's, it's a different, it's a different, uh, uh, it's just a different, you know, uh, ball to juggle. And so we know what happened conclusively with all confidence. And so that is the reason why I, I speak about the case and why I wrote the book about the case is because I believe the public should at least be informed as to what took place in the investigation, what evidence we developed, and how this all fits together. But as far as prosecuting people and getting judicial justice in these cases, it's never done. gonna happen. That's done. Yep, the best thing we could have done, um, you know, rest in peace, Afini Shakur, the best thing we could have done was at least let the family and their friends know what happened. And many of those people have given us their feedback saying, We've always known that was the truth. They, who, the family and friends have told you. Oh, absolutely. We've always known that to be the truth. Yeah, many of them. When I spoke with, uh, with his aunt, Gloria, and I told her about the book and explained what was yeah. in it, she said, that's very interesting. Thank you for all your time and effort. But we always knew that. <laughs> so, and of course, we know that Afini Shakur had sued um, Orlando Anderson after the shooting, claiming that he was the, the shooter. How much after? Uh, almost, you know, within a year. Because he was yeah. going around at parties talking about, I'm the one that killed Tupac, yeah. and Keefe said, why don't you stop talking? You're, exactly. you're being too loud. Yeah, he, okay. was, he was boasting about it in the neighborhood. So it was not a well-kept secret. The people in the neighborhood, in their inner circle, they all knew that he was responsible for it. But again, it's very difficult to then get those people with any credibility up on the witness stand and prosecute um, successfully. What are the chances of another thing? Like, do you think we're at a point right now due to, again, social media where to start another East Coast, West Coast type of stuff is pretty much mathematically impossible to do it today. I do believe it is just because of technology. Sure. You know, back when Tupac was shot in Las Vegas, there was no traffic cameras. Uh, even the video that we see during the fight between these two at the MGM, it's so grainy, you can barely even make out images. So technology's come so far, you'd have cell phone videos, traffic cameras, uh, all types of things that uh, we could have utilized uh, more effectively had we had that technology 20 years ago. And it would have been easier to and faster to figure out who it was. Yeah, if absolutely. If you had the technology we have today. I believe so. So uh, how about Kifidi, the fact that he's going around talking and he's you know, saying a lot of different things right now in many different interviews. Can he get himself in trouble with Las Vegas PD going after him for what he's saying? Absolutely. So his initial confession to us was done under what's known as a proffer session. It's, a, it's an agreement between his attorney, him and his attorney, and the prosecution, in this case the U.S. Attorney's Office, where he can disclose everything he knows about a crime, answer all of our questions truthfully, but we can't use his own self-incriminating statements against him. It's called kind of queen for a day. You cannot use your own self-incriminating statements against yourself. You can't use it against the individual. Correct. Now that doesn't mean that he has immunity. That just simply means he's, he, we can't use his own testimony against him. If other evidence or Are other you people... Or you, you, so if a person says, I did kill that person, you can't use that against the person? Under the unique conditions of this agreement, this proffer Under agreement... Under the unique conditions of this agreement. Right. I got it. Not just the average person. Oh, of course, it's no. It's this agreement that he's made. It's a particular agreement having to do with the fact that Fair we had enough. a bunch of narcotics. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And then... And then any but to, to follow up with you, sure. I'm sorry to interrupt, but... The statements that he's made publicly after that, the ones that are not under a proffer agreement, he's gone on BET, he's gone on Vlad TV, he's gone on all types of different platforms and tells the story about his involvement, the involvement of his nephew, this, the story as I've explained it to you. He's confessed to it multiple times mm. now. And uh, we're all sitting here kind of dumbfounded why Las Vegas hasn't reeled him in and, and dealt with him. You're, when you say we, who is we? You and everybody that's involved in this case? Yeah. Okay. Fans. Got it. Sure. Other investigators. Got it. Uh, advocates for, you know, for these gentlemen. So is that an indirect way of hinting to him that stop talking and just kind of uh, go live your life and stop talking about the stories? It's only going to get one person in trouble and it's him? No, I, I'm, gl I'm 
talk as much, you know, go out there. And, uh, you know, because again, I think that the story that he's revealing is for all intent, you know, he's, he puts some little twists on it. But, uh, you know, he's ultimately explaining what happened. I believe that Las Vegas PD and the LAPD, based on the evidence that we have currently, should clear the cases and set history right. You know, these men, their cases are not unsolved, they're unprosecuted. Unprosecuted, not unsolved, unprosecuted. How big of a difference is the personality between them two? I know they grew up in the same place. How big of a difference in personality did they have? Uh, quite, quite different. Okay. Um, in person, they, they can both be somewhat charming. Um, you know, sitting down and talking to Keefe D. He was cordial and respectful and, uh, and, and truthful. Um, but at the, there's this whole other side to him, as there is to him. Um, what makes these guys dangerous is not who they are, it's who they know. It's the guys that they can influence to go out and commit the crimes and do the shootings. So, you know, these guys as shot callers are dangerous by the nature of who they affiliate themselves got with. It. They call the shot, somebody's got to go handle it. Right. Last thing here, F. Gary Gray, what involvement does he have with this whole thing here? So, uh, F. Gary Gray uh, was producing a, a show called Straight Outta Compton, basically the feature film showing the development and life of NWA. He was uh, going to have a character within this feature film of Suge Knight. Suge Knight felt that he owes him money for using his image. And so he began to show up at the set in Compton when they were shooting the feature and kind of threatening people around F. Gary Gray. So F. Gary Gray and other people involved in the production, they get a hold of a guy named Terry Carter. They know Terry Carter. He's one of those guys from the neighborhood everybody respects. He's a guy that can go in and kind of mitigate a situation. Mm -hmm. And so he goes and tries to meet with Suge Knight down at a hamburger stand not too far from the set. And Suge Knight and another individual that came from the set, a guy named Clay Sloan, get into a fight. Now Clay is hitting Suge through the window of his truck. Suge backs up and runs over Clay and almost kills him. And then he pulls forward and runs over Terry Carter and kills him. Mm. So you can pull this video up That's on right, YouTube. Yeah. It's, it's a very graphic video of him it being is. run over and killed. Ultimately, he gets prosecuted for that vehicular manslaughter and receives a 28-year sentence, which he's currently serving. And for all intent and purpose, that's a, that's a life sentence for that's him. That's a life sentence for someone like him. Yeah. Have you ever had a sit down with him face to face? Or no, not? I've conducted tons of surveillance uh, with him, listened to phone calls with him, and you know, obviously seen all of his interviews, but I've never actually sat down face to face with Suge. When you do the surveillance, does he sound like a pretty firm guy? Meaning if he wants something to be done, the people... Uh, he, he, he's a tremendous manipulator. Okay. Tremendous manipulator. And nobody knows word. that better than Reggie Wright Jr., who's out there vocally talking about his history with Death Row, his involvement with Suge Knight, and you know he's uh, you know he's got a really interesting story to tell, also. So let me ask you a question, uh, uh, Greg. At this point, everybody here can anyone be litigated today that hasn't yet been? Not really. The okay. only the only possibilities I see is that these guys created work environments that led to their murders. And so there is a, you know, there is a, a civil situation where uh, when you create such a hostile environment within the workplace and then somebody suffers harm because of, it, of that, that's, that's an actionable thing. Of course, it would have to take his mother to kind of perceive that and, and, and see things that way. Um, but it's still a long shot. It's uh, not like it's a long yeah. shot. If they, if they, it's a long shot. If they couldn't do anything, his mother with the 400 million and after all this, it's probably going to be a long shot to do that. It, it really is. Okay. But keeping in mind that also that, uh, you know, in, in a criminal court, you're trying to prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt. In civil court, the burden of proof is much lower and it's just more of a preponderance of the evidence. So what's to come next with you, Greg, with this story? Is this story pretty much done for you? I mean, obviously, it turned into, the book turned into a documentary, turned into a series. I know you had a couple scenes as the bartender in the, the Netflix series. Yeah. What's to come next with this story? Anything to expect? Uh, not really. Um, you know, like I said, the majority of these guys have all met their demise. Um, and uh, there's not much more to say about it. We've got to the bottom of it. And um, I think we can conclusively and definitively say this is what happened to these two individuals, and uh, this is the historical 
factual case. Well, I can tell you one thing. I was in high school when this happened, and I was a die. I mean, I'm a diehard Tupac fan. At the time, as a kid, we were listening to him. I got him into painting, and I've been on a flight with him before. I almost sold him an insurance policy, but the insurance <laughs> carriers will never <laughs> approve. I had a meeting with him one time through one of my associates at the. Uh, Beverly Hills Hilton, and I said, I can't sell this guy an insurance policy. Who's going to insure Suge Knight? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a very interesting story, and, you know, mm -hmm. I know, obviously, a lot of time was put into it to investigate this, so thank you for your service uh, to do that and get to the bottom of it and tell the story and, you know, turn it into a book and a movie now. Uh, and outside of that, you know, uh, if you haven't watched the series on Netflix called Unsolved, if you haven't watched it, one... Go watch it. It's 10, I think it's 10 episodes. 10 episode it's, limited series. Yeah, yeah, 10 episode limited series. But uh, Greg, we appreciate you coming out, man. This was great. Thanks, yeah. And this visual was a very different approach. Absolutely. I really like the way it ended yeah, up happening. This is, I think this is the most effective way to tell the story. It's a convoluted and complicated story, but at least this, this helps to put faces to names and put it together. I agree. Yeah. Now, this is a complete different uh, way yeah. of looking at it. Now. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.